seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, that this would be Bilhah and Zilpah, and they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company or camp that I met? He's referring now to the droves, okay, the five droves. Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your, your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Verse 12, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you or along with you. Translations are sort of divided on that. I don't know if you've uh, got a marginal reading there or not. But... uh, Either of those two renderings is what you typically encounter here with what we have in the ESV probably being the more prevalent one. I will go ahead of you, but along with you is also a a legitimate rendering, probably inferring more from the context. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Now notice that. Until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but... There's one of those significant buts. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booths. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paden Aram, and he camped before the city. Or, as the King James puts it, he pitched his tent before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, please note that you heard those those names because they will be very significant next week in chapter 34. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. Then he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. One other little editorial comment real quick before we pray. Um, You may also have a marginal reading for 100 pieces of money. And we don't really know what that equates to specifically because it's not really, uh, even when you get into some of the weight measurements that we are typically familiar with, talent and those types of things, um, it's difficult sometimes to pin that down. It's a weight measurement. So seeing as how it's a weight measurement, you have to figure out what metal that you're talking about, oftentimes silver. Um, Still, though, 
trying to figure those values out. You know, the best you can really do sometimes is figure out well, what does silver go for an ounce and multiply that out and hope you get somewhere close. But it's still a bit of a, you know, <laughs> you're not totally sure. In this case, though, it's not a term like that that we're familiar with, so can't tell you, except that you can probably mark it down that he got a good bargain. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for all the good people of God that have assembled in this place. And Lord, we are mindful of some that couldn't be here today that aren't well. Some sickness going around, we want to pray for those. Some uh, otherwise uh, medically uh, inhibited from coming, we pray you'll watch over those and restore their health and bless them. Some traveling, it gets to be the tail end of the summer now and Labor Day weekend next weekend. So uh, we think in advance to pray that you'll give journey, Journey's mercies to any who might be on the road for either of those times. And Lord, more than anything now, we've come because we know that we are in need of the daily uh, refreshment that you give. And more particularly, we're also in need of uh, the corporate things, part of our corporate worship where we come and spend time together around the Word of God and, uh, and sing together and things that uh, we can do, but you have us anointed and blessed in a special way, which is why you've given us the Lord's Day. We acknowledge that wisdom and we also acknowledge our dependence and pray that you will just give us help and aid now, Lord, so that all the worries, all the cares, all the things that are in front of us for this day, we just have the grace to put those aside and be looking to you now for what you have and waiting upon you for blessing. Thank you again, Lord, that you know us each as individuals, so we pray that you will suit a blessing for each of us today. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. All right, well, if you look up at the screen, um, I have a title for you today that I hope is sort of fetching. I hope it sort of captures our attention. The Relief of Reconciliation. I want you to ponder that for a moment. Of course, the subject matter is Esau. You might recall that when we were back at the chapter 32, the chapter immediately previous, here is Jacob, and he's just coming from a, a, a dicey, kind of a difficult situation with Laban. It was a bit tense. Remember that? And he's thinking that the next thing he's got to face is Esau, which is true, and it's good that he didn't run from that. I made that comment last week. He honestly knew he had to do that. It turns out that in chapter 32, though, the next showdown was not with Esau. The next showdown was with God. And that was the lesson that we looked at, particularly as we came to the culmination of chapter 32 at the end there with um, the showdown at Peniel, where he wrestles with God and he sees God, in a, in a manner of speaking, face to face. So... We come to chapter 33 now, and the inevitable is going to occur. He is going to meet up with Esau. Just want you to ponder for a moment. It's not a comfortable feeling, is it, when you know you're not right with someone? And it goes both ways. I mean, you may have done everything completely within your power to rectify that situation, but the other people just aren't willing. Or you may be the guilty party. You may be someone who has done something and you know it's not right. The best thing you can do is keep short accounts, which is one reason Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Not always possible to do that literally, right? I mean, you, in this day and age, you do have a telephone and you have texting and things like that. But still, sometimes it just doesn't work. But the whole idea behind that passage is seek reconciliation. It's an urgent matter. 
We looked at that verse in Matthew 5. You go to, you go, I'm just going to put this in the terms that we would think of today. You go to church, and there you remember that your brother has ought against you. He says, put your gift down. It's more important. Go be reconciled with your brother. So there's an urgency about this thing. And this has gone on some 20 years now, so he's had a lot of time to think about this. But when the whole situation closed out back home, you remember, Esau was threatening to kill him. So it is somewhat natural that he would have some trepidation, some fears. Now God has come to him. God has pr provided mahanium. He's, he's provided the experience with the angels so that he would have that encouragement. And, and, and Jacob, Jacob has responded to that fairly well. But we were talking last week in chapter 32 about surrender because this has just been a tussle for Jacob, hasn't it? I mean, when you're a resourceful person, and I don't think any of us is, is unwilling to see that or unable to see that. Jo Jacob was certainly a resourceful person. And he was a shrewd person. And he was a cunning person. And he could, he could at times be deceitful. And of course, the, the real beginning of that was back in, in the very beginning of the story when he was told three lies to his father and was the supplanter. And Esau made the comment himself. He sure rightly named, because that's what he did. He stole my blessing. And so he could do that. And even in some of his dealings with Laban, you can kind of see ah, something that we might just colloquially, colloquially refer to as a little shiftiness, maybe. You can't maybe pin some of it down. So what is going on in this chapter is God is bringing him to this point of surrender. God is bringing him to the place where he's so desperate that even his own resources are no good. Do you remember the comment that was made back in chapter 32? He says, I fear for the, for the mother and children. I mean, he, he's, on his, he's on his back now. He, he's, his back is against the wall. He realizes he's gotten this news that Esau's coming with 400 men. He has two bands, but they, they, these are not soldiers, right? He doesn't have military forces with him. He doesn't have anything with him except what Nehemiah had, which was God's promise. Remember when the king said, well, I could send some soldiers with you. And he said, well, <laughs> no, I, I don't need. It's good, you know. And he doesn't have anything with him except God's promises. So, he, I mean, his back is really against the wall. And you remember, too, that God is the one who initiates this struggle. In the popular way of looking at this, because we talk about um, prayer a lot with respect to that passage, a lot of times we kind of get it wrong. We're thinking he, he was wrestling with God. Well, he was wrestling with God, but he didn't initiate this. God initiated this because God wanted to bring him to the place where he really saw that all this resourcefulness, I mean, planning and all these things, they're good in their own right, but not if that's what you're really putting your faith in and not if that's what you're really depending on. So that's what that chapter is all about. What I want to say to you today, and that's kind of a long way of getting there, but I wanted to kind of get us back up to speed. Now this chapter is really about living it out. Because, see, here's the thing. Every time you make a spiritual decision, every time you make, let's call it progress in your walk with God, every time you're reading the Bible, you're listening to a message, whatever else, and God speaks to your heart, and you say, you know, that's, I understand what the Lord is wanting me to do here, and you yield to that, you can mark it down. You're going to be tested. Those spiritual decisions will be tested, and that's what's going on. So living out this, decide, this decision to be consecrated and to live a surrendered life, that's something that gets tested about every day for me. I don't know about you. 
but it, I don't have to go too far. I don't even have to leave the house. But if you leave the house and get behind the wheel of your car, you will be tested. Your sanctification will every day. It'll be tested, believe me. And so, I mean, God gives us lots of opportunities to, uh, to do this, but that's certainly what this chapter is about. And I want to point out, just to be sure that we understand, if, in case there would be any confusion about this, and we have to understand from a theological, and I, I don't use that word to, to make you feel intimidated or for things to take on kind of a, a higher tone than they need to, but we do rest upon what we know the Bible teaches. And it's important for us to understand that sanctification or consecration, sanctification is both a, a position that we have before God in which God views it as a completed work in Christ because we're in Christ. God sees us in Christ, so he doesn't see us a little bit justified today and a lot justified tomorrow when we're in his presence. No, he sees us completely justified today. He doesn't see us as a little sanctified, even though that's true, as much as he sees us in Christ, and so we have the righteousness of Christ, and he sees this is a completed thing. But in this world, where are we? Well, we're on the pilgrim pathway. We have a journey. And this journey is all about living out these decisions, living in the light of the truth that the Bible gives to us. Here's some verses that would be good. Um, we're going to join this passage most of the way towards the end, I wanted to give you a little more context. Both of these are from Corinthians. There's one I'll refer to from Romans in a moment. But you notice how in the earlier part of this, he gives all this list of people, these, these, these former reprobates and sinners at Corinth. But we can see ourselves in that list probably somewhere. But he says, don't kid yourself. Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral and idolaters and adulterers and men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, those people whose lifestyle is what those words just said, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. And about that, Paul says to them, don't kid yourself. Don't be deceived. Don't let someone tell you otherwise. If that's your lifestyle, if that's your whole manner of life, if, if there's never been a change, you have no valid profession of faith. You have no valid claim for anybody to recognize that you're a believer. Now, some people still look like they aren't, but you don't have a valid claim. And this is what Paul says in this final verse. Such were some of you. Man, alive, if there were ever a great place to rejoice in the past tense, that's, that's it right there. Such were. Because something happened, a change took place. Now you've trusted Christ as Savior. And what happened when you trusted Christ as Savior? These are all past tenses. You were washed. That has to do with sanctification and cleansing. You were sanctified, which is what we're talking about now. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So there's your position. This is what we are in Christ. And of course, you know the verse in Romans. You have that fantastic passage in Romans 8, 28 to 30. You get to the end of verse 30, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. But then at the end, he says, Moreover, whom he did foreknow, then he, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Now notice, these are all past tenses also. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. If you're here today and you're saved, that calling's in the past. 
that, that effectual calling is in the past. And whom he called, them he also justified, past tense. That's something God recognizes as our standing in Christ today. It's, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So you see how to God, this is all a package. This is all given to us in Christ, even though some of these things are yet to be fully realized. All right, That's one verse. Here's something he told the Corinthians, though, in what we call the second letter. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. And look at this is a present tense. Are being transformed. That's exactly what Paul said to the Romans too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is a present tense. This is going on all the time, and you'll notice as my good friend John Master always liked to point it out, is a passive, you are being transformed. So this is a work of God into the same image from one glory, one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So that's our background, and we've got to get moving. So we're going to get three opportunities to see how this, he, he was given opportunities to live this decision about surrender and consecration, and particularly in his case, understanding that, you know what? I might be a resourceful individual. I might have all these gifts and ways of finagling and working my problems out on my own, but ultimately I need to depend on the Lord. I can't put my faith in those things. Particularly when you've got somebody coming at you with 400 men, you know, that, all that stuff isn't going to work. And so, so first of all, I want to talk about anxious Jacob. All right, now, I just want to pause. I, you know, I put a lot of thought into these things. That doesn't mean they're perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I try to choose words that I think are apropos, and I want you to think about anxious for a moment. It's really um, a talked-about subject, and probably rightly so, today to talk about anxiety. Got any anxieties? You don't have to put your hand up because I can't see everybody's hand at once. Everybody has anxieties. And some people are really afflicted with this. And some people, you know, you have some things that can make you anxious in the moment, but, you know, you, you work past that fairly quickly. And for other people, there are just some subjects they, they immediately, you know, your blood pressure starts to change. Well, that's what I think we're dealing with in this opening 11 verses. But I'm going to tell you, this is tough to evaluate, and I want to go back again and say that another thing that is really important to me is to make every effort I possibly can to be fair. Um, so there are sermons and there are preachers that would just really give you a, a really negative presentation of this insofar as Jacob is concerned. I'm going to give you something that kind of charts the midway course because I think you can see, as I say there in the second point, you can see what's negative and you can see, as we'll see in the third thought, what's positive. What's probably not good? What's probably a reflection? And you remember I pointed this out last week. He plans, then he prays. And this is the sequence in chapter 32. He plans, he prays. He plans, he prays. But when you get into chapter 33, where does it end? He's planning again. This is his struggle. This is the struggle unique to him, although I think we all have to deal with it in one, one sense or another. But what all does he do? And you notice the first thing that 
that I say here is, I, I chose two words. His plan in verses 1 through 3 seems ill-conceived and impractical. The reason I say that is because, so you split everybody up into these groups, makes a real impression on your family, doesn't it? When you put the servant wives, the second string wives, you'll have to forgive me, ladies, I don't mean any harm, but this is just, it, all of this really goes to uh, point out God's wisdom in one man, one woman for life, you know? I mean, God knows what he's doing with these things. But in any case, this is the way it is, so this is what, but he puts them out front. Well, that makes a real impression. And, uh, and then Leah, who is, he has two people on the first string team. But <laughs> anyway, then Leah, then Rachel and Joseph. Benjamin hasn't been born yet. That's yet to come. So he divides them up. Now, what good is that going to do you when somebody's coming at you with 400 people and you've left your family with this overwhelming impression that, well, okay, you know, I see who's most important. I guess they already knew that. I guess it didn't surprise them. And he, you know, he puts them all in that order. So I, you know, I don't see what you get out of this, really. I mean, 400 people, if he decided he was going to wipe them out, that was a done deal. There, there wasn't anything you were going to change that. And his actions, what do I mean by his actions? Well, in verse 3, it says, he went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times. Then when, when Esau finally looks around, he says, who are all these people? He says, well, these are the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. And they all bow. Well, you I mean, you know, in the Oriental way of things and the customs and so forth, um, you, you might bow. But seven times, wow, I mean, you know. Plus all this back and forth with your servant, which he calls himself and calls Esau his lord, over and over and over. And it just, it just seems like overkill, okay? That's the impression that I think you get from this. But there is something positive to all this. I mean, he's humble, something I think we, we struggle with a lot. And he, for this reconciliation to happen, he's going to need some humility. You, you, folks, that's a, that's a point for us to recognize. I and mean, you're not going to go in and resolve problems, interpersonal conflict with people without some humility, even if you're right. Because if you go in there with guns blazing, it isn't going anywhere, I can tell you. So he's humble, and you see that in the bowing, and you see that in the servant and Lord terminology that he continues to use. And I didn't mention this, but something I do want to mention now, it's not in the notes, but he seems to have gotten over his fear. I mean, he's ready to face this moment. Back in chapter 32, verse 11, he told God, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. But now he, I mean, he might have divided the wives and the children all up into the teams, but he go, he's out front. He's leading the way. And this is, what, this is what the head of the home needs to do. He needs to lead the way spiritually, which is what he's trying to do here. He realizes that he needs to reconcile with his brother. But he also needs to take responsibility for the care and protection and well-being of his family, which he has done to the best of his ability, but you just have, sort of have to remember, you get to a place where you've done everything you can do and your ability ends and you do have to trust God. And, you know, it's like someone said about prayer one time, oh, has it come to that? It's supposed to come to that every day, folks. That's the whole point. So th this is where we are with this. And I also think he's got a real point of wisdom in this. 
you know, Esau says, what, what do you mean by all these droves? He says, well, those are a gift. And you can see some of Jacob's shrewdness coming out in this gift, but Esau doesn't want to take it at first. Jacob presses him to take it. This is why I want to be sure we read this. And he says, no, my brother. No, please, verse 10, if I have found favor in your sight. What's he doing? He's making sure, I'm just going to use our terminology, he's making sure his apology has been accepted. That's probably a point of wisdom. Esau is probably the kind of person who wouldn't give it lightly. I think Esau meant this. We'll see this next. But still, when you're dealing with people, I'm telling you right now, if you haven't already figured this out, but a lot of you have been around in life and you've figured this out, people are slippery and people are tricky. And particularly when you're in these tight situations with people and emotions are high and maybe there's this interpersonal conflict, people have a way of hedging their bets. They tell you just enough for it to sound like everything is okay, and so I, I think there's a point of wisdom in this. He wants to be sure that there's something that he can look back to and something he, Esau can look back to and says, I made this right with you. And in essence, you signed off on it. I think there's a point of wisdom in that. Now, in the end, though, remember what I told you about anxiety. And I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that for some people... It, this is not easy. Getting a hold of your anxieties is not easy. But have you ever noticed this about life? Half or more of the time, the things that we get so worked up about and troubled about never happen anyway. Isn't that the truth? I mean, now sometimes there's, I'm not saying you don't have some things that you really have to deal with. But I'm just saying a lot of it's wasted effort, which is why Paul tells us in first, or Philippians 4, don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And we're back to that again. Oh, has it come to that? Prayer. But it does work. He says, the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But in the end, look at this. Look at what happens here. Esau, it's like Esau forgot this about 19 and three quarters years ago. I mean... Verse 4 says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. I, got, I tell you, I got a real blessing out of this. Now, I've been through this before and preached on this before, but, you know, lots of times, um, especially when you're doing this as a calling, <laughs> you remember things, but you don't always remember everything. And I was reading through this chapter and reading through this chapter in preparation, not this week, before. Reading through this and just thinking about this and thinking about this. And the more I thought about this, I thought to myself, let me read this verse again. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and wept. That just sounds like something else I know about in the Bible. <laughs> well, it sure does. This is the father in the prodigal son story. And he arose and came to his father, and he was all set to do what Jacob was set to do. You know, he was all set to just make me one of your hired servants, which the humility was good. But while he was still a long way off, it's like the old man was watching every day, hoping today would be the day. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. All the three verbs that we have here, ran, embraced, and kissed. And I noticed that and I wrote that down in my notes. And then later when I was actually doing some further research, I found one of the most reputable commentators that I refer to brought the same point out and I thought, hallelujah, at least I wasn't out to lunch on that. It's just a blessing to me to see this, you know what I mean? Anyway, we're going to back up a little bit, but we have to pick up our speed. So um, if I hit the right button, it goes the way you tell it. So his, his anger is long gone, which I told you made this comment back when we were dealing with this, you know, if you would sell Rebecca short, you'd make a bad mistake. She was as canny as the rest of them. And she certainly knew her children. And she was the one who made the comment, Verse 43, now therefore, this is chapter 27, now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. It's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. So, you know, the servants didn't do Jacob any favors when they came back and said, yeah, he's coming, he's got 400 men with him. And they didn't have any further word. That would sort of leave you in a dither. But... A lot of that anxiety was for naught, and a lot of that back and forth between planning and praying, between trusting and trying and all these things, you know, it was, oh, we're just looking in the mirror, folks, that's all. All right, let's move along. Shrewd Jacob. Well, he was that. Same deal. Middle part of the chapter, it's up and down, left and right, back and forth. Some of each. Jacob is smart enough to see something. Esau says, let's, let's go along here and we'll go down to see here. Well, you come along. And you can tell Jacob is not particularly comfortable with that. He's, he's not really looking for that. There's several reasons, but I think just on a practical level, just on, on what you can figure out about human nature, when you've got a situation like that, it's a little early to, to be that close. You know, some people you're better friends with at a distance. You ever notice that? If you try to get too close to them, they just, you know, you just aren't meant for that proximity. It's too much fur rubbed the wrong way. We won't complete that saying. But you know what I mean. It's just some people that you can, hi, how are you? See them at church, you know, or whatever. and and. And, and make a little small talk, but if you start doing a whole lot of stuff, it just doesn't seem to click. And I think he's smart to recognize that, yes, they've made a very good beginning, but the proximity right now, maybe they may be in a little time to digest these decisions that they've made. And so he brings up about the children being frail and, and so forth. And Esau then says, well, how about I leave some of the people that I have here with you? I could, you know, leave a hundred troops here and be sure you get down there okay. And I think Jacob is right on another level. I think he's also right in recognizing that, you know, this isn't, God didn't call me to go to Seir. Back in chapter 31, verse 3, and we'll only take time for two verses because I think in a moment I'm going to hit you with about seven of them. But chapter 31, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your kindred. He's saying about Seir, which is not even in Palestine. It's not even in, the, in Canaan. Or it's to the south, way to the south. That's where Esau was. 
But God didn't call him to where Esau was. God did call him to make things right with Esau, but he didn't call him there. Verse 13 of chapter 31, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. All the promises and all the calling and all the blessing that Jacob had wanted had to do with the land of promise, had nothing to do with Seir. So I think he's right on two levels. I think he's right that the, the, the relationship just isn't ready for this proposal that Esau has. I think he's right to see in it a diversion. But I think when you read verse 13 and you dwell on it for just a moment, look what he says there when Esau makes the offer of leaving some of the men. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, and this is just kind of an oblique response, he just says, what need is there? And it isn't too hard to figure out that Jacob never really intends to do what he told him he was going to do. He says at the end of verse 14, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So he sends Esau away with the impression that it might be a while till he gets there, but he's coming. Look at verse 17, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. And so, what are you faced with? You're faced with the practical question of what's Esau going to think when the guy never shows? He's going to look back at it and say, well, he always was good with words. So, I think it sort of lends to the idea that he's perhaps being, in his politeness, there's almost a little bit too much strategy. It's kind of the old Jacob a little bit. And possibly even you go so far, some commentators would, as to say he was being deceitful here. I don't know. That's a tough one there. You can make that call, but it's tough sometimes when you, when you try to figure out that the customs of people in that society, I'm not just that time, but that society, in the, their manner of being polite and, and all that type of thing, a little different than what American customs I won't even say now, but historically have been. It's just like when we send a diplomat to Red China and they bow, that's not too well received with the American public back home because traditionally you Americans don't do that in foreign policy. They don't bow. But in that, in that culture you would. So um, it, I, I, don't, I don't know. You can decide for yourself and I'm not going to break fellowship with you either way. But the last one is distracted. Again, I'm, I'm choosing my words trying to be careful about this because I think this last season is another tough one. Uh, there's a word not here, given our lack of. I didn't catch that till this morning, if you can believe that, after proofreading this about 20 times. But anyway, given our lacked, lack of knowledge of the exact nature of all of Jacob's thoughts, this is another tough one to call. But... I think, and this is where I want to hit you with these verses. I want, to, I want us to all do this, okay? You're not having even to leave the, the book of Genesis. But I want you to go back with me to chapter 27, verse 45. So let me get you to do a little something that way. And I want you to tell me, what, what's your conclusion about 
him stopping at Succoth and going to Shechem in the light of these verses. Okay, I'm sort of anticipating the lesson for next week. All right, let's start with 2745. Verse 44 at the end, and stay with him a while, that is my brother, your uncle, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Well, she wasn't thinking, nor was he, that he was going to go and be there for 20 years, but it was supposed to end with him coming back home. Now, is that, are we putting too much burden on that, or do we have other, other sort of uh, fortification of that? Go to 28.15. This is God making the promises to him, and he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. That's the promised land. I'm going to make a point on that in a minute now. To this land, where I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Drop down in the same chapter to 20. Then Jacob made a vow. So what does he get out of all this? What's his understanding? If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that, what is it? I come again to my father's house, not Esau my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Go over to chapter 30, verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I go, may go to my own home and country. This is the promised land, and this is home. This is where Isaac was. Chapter 31, verse 3, we already read. Chapter 31, verse 13, we already read. But go to chapter 31, verse 18. Let's pile on. We'll get 15 yards for piling on or whatever. But I want you to see this. Is it 15 or 10? Nobody knows? Football penalty. Is it 15 for piling on or 10? That's what I thought. Okay, nice to get it right once in a while. don't watch a lot of it, but... Verse 18, he drove away all his livestock and all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired and paid in Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. And later in the chapter, what's Laban's impression? That last verse, verse 30, and now you have gone away because you longed greatly after your father's house. Why did you steal my gods? Folks, to take a little different application from this, nothing wrong with longing for the Father's house. Nothing wrong at all. But Succoth is north and Seir is south. And also Succoth is still, on the, is still in Transjordan. It's still in, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You're not in the promised land. And not only does he go there, but look at what the verbs are when you look at these last several verses in the chapter. He built a house. This kind of sounds like um, a little bit more than just a pull off to the rest area. 
He built for himself a house, verse 17. So built, booths for his cattle. And then if you drop down, when he finally went to Shechem, it says, and from verse 19, the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought a parcel of land. And he pitched his tent toward Shechem. Now I'm going to tell you something in anticipation of next week without stealing Ron's thunder. The more you look at this, the more you realize that he probably spent several years here in this location. In fact, he may have spent, he may have spent up to two to three years in each of the two locations. So what happens when you get distracted? Well, there's a little pattern that you can fall into, and this is where you start running into the danger of complacency. Let yourself get distracted from what it is that God wants you to do, which he does by the cattle, because it's a great place. And when you read the next chapter, you find out that it was a trading place. Shechem was. So it's a great place for cattle. Bethel wasn't so much. I mean, a bunch of rocks. Distraction will lead to delay, and delay in the house he builds and the time he spends there will lead to disobedience. He was supposed to be going to Bethel, and he was supposed to be going to the promised land. But again, this is what makes Jacob something that really teaches us, but at the same time makes the calls difficult to make because it's such a strange mix. You read at the end of the chapter, there he, he pitches his tent toward Shechem, but yet, he erects an altar and calls it El Elohe Israel, where he uses the name of God and where he uses the new name that God gave him in chapter 32, verse 28. So, what's he trying to do? Is he trying to inject just a little bit of religion, or does he build this altar because he, he, he thinks, this will help me remind myself of my calling. But, eh, you got a, a little bit of a problem that at least it happens. So, all I ask you to do today to do as we, as we end the lesson is consider this. Isn't this so typical of where you and I are? I mean, most of us, many of us, hopefully all of us, but maybe not, have made some decision about surrender and consecration to the Lord, but that's tested every day, sometimes more than others. And there's this, the fits and turns, the up and down, the back and forth. We're on one day, off the next. And what we really need to do is ask God to help us to be more consistent. It's difficult to do this, folks, if you're not consistently in the Word and consistently praying and these kinds of things. So if you're going to be inconsistent in your walk, you'll likely be inconsistent in your determination to follow the Lord. You have to keep on keeping, all of us have to keep on keeping ourselves renewed and refreshed and strengthened. Lord, bless us now as we finish up our class today and go to the next the worship service to follow. Bless our pastor as he opens the word and as we join our hearts in worship in Jesus' name.